Rambam Mishneh Torah, entering into a new subject. Hilchah the laws of mitame, those who bring about or impart impurity. Mishka, by laying down or lying down on a particular spot, it conveys impurity because they are lying on it. For example, somebody lies on a couch or a cot or what have you, or a bed. Or Meshav, or somebody sits on something, the lying down or the sitting, the laying down or the sitting conveys impurity by certain people. Now, I want to just point out that these laws, by and large, have to do with purity and impurity relating to entering the base on English. Or not. Relating to eating of holy foods. Or not. That's the level of purity and impurity, by and large, that we talk about here. Although, some of these also affect relationships, but that's not, by and large, what we're learning now. In this general context, there are four positive mitzvahs. And these are the details. Again, in a world where everybody needed to be ritually pure. One, the laws of impurity of a menstruating woman, a woman who is in her menstrual state, brings about a certain level of impurity. And we learned earlier about interaction of husband and wife. That's not what we're learning here. Excuse me. Din, the law, Tumas, of impurity of Yeledes, of a woman who gives birth, simply by giving birth, she has become transformed into a temporary state of impurity. Then we learned about abnormal sexual flow, whether it's of a woman or a man. He says here in the translation of the Mo'oznaim Rambam, that wonderful translation which gave birth to the Chayenu translation as well. He says this is a gonorrhea-like state. It's a disease-like state. Din, Tumas, Zava, the laws of impurity of a female. Zava, Zava is feminine. For abnormal sexual flow, the Din, Tumas, Zav, or the laws of impurity for a male who has abnormal sexual flow. Well, they are mitzvahs elu, and the explanation of these four mitzvahs, meaning impurity of menstruation, impurity of birth, impurity of abnormal flows of female or male, the Prakim elu, the explanation will be brought forth in these chapters. Now, the Rambam is amazing at organization. I've said this many times. The Rambam builds a building. The Rambam starts from the beginning and lays the structure. Always in chapter one, we have the foundation. So here we have the foundation. Beta Christian, chapter one. We're talking about four categories here. Hazov, a male with an abnormal flow. Behazov, and a female with an abnormal flow. Behanida, and a woman with a normal flow during her menstrual cycle. My Yolanda and a woman who, with Mazel Bracha, gives birth. Kol Echad, Me Arbaton, every one of the above four categories. The impurity, which comes at the moment of flow. Av is a major source of impurity. Me Avay Satuma, of the primary sources of impurity. Therefore, because it's primary, Metame, it defiles. It brings about impurity to tail into all types of utensils. Bimaga, by touching. Any of the above people touch any type of object, and conveys impurity to people, by touching, and carrying. And here we have more coming. It brings about defilement. Simply by laying down on that object. Or by sitting on that object. Or by riding, for example. By riding on a saddle. Riding on a horse. The saddle becomes impure. It makes all those objects a primary source of impurity. Now the Rambam is going to add another one. It also imparts impurity to the objects above them. This is something we didn't deal with very much till now. So he says here in this commentary to the Mishnah in Zovim, chapter 4, Mishnah 6, the Rambam focuses on the meaning of the Hebrew term madav, quoting the Gemara Nida, which states that this term is rooted in the phrase ole nidav, a rustling leaf, a movement that is not of substance. We also find in Berochus 51, rechei nodev, its fragment wafted, which means it has a far-fetching effect. So that's the idea of madav floating above the impure person. Base to echad zobaktana. Now we learned many, many, many of these laws earlier. We've touched upon these laws in the section of impurity of women. We've touched upon these laws in the section of intimacy between men and women. We've touched upon these laws in the laws of Mechusri Kapara, those who still lack atonement. So we have crisscrossed many of these laws again and again. Bia Sasuris, forbidden relationships, and so on. So he says, Echad Zavaktano, when it comes to the feminine abnormal flow, which is called Zavaktano, minor Zavo. What is the meaning of minor Zavo? There is normal blood flow during the normal menstrual cycle. That is called Nida. Then there's abnormal blood flow, not during the normal menstrual cycle. And we talked about the fact that the Rambam says in Halacha there is seven days and 11 days and so on. Now within this non-menstrual cycle era, era time, a woman could see blood once or she could see blood twice. This is called Zobo Ktano, a minor Zobo because all she needs to do is Shemedes Yom Keneged Yom. She has to observe a day of purity canceling out the day of impurity. The Echad Zobo or the major form of Zobo which is she saw three sightings or more. So here she becomes seriously impure. 
and she has to count seven days, and so on and so forth, and then there are sacrifices, and a whole procedure. Whether she is the cause of her flow, a or something from the outside happened to her, and that's what caused the flow. Or if she saw two sightings, or three, when it comes to conveying impurity to a recipient of impurity, it's all the same. Conveying impurity is conveying impurity. That's what two tells us, that the strength of the source of impurity is secondary to the fact that this conveys impurity. Gimel 3, we learned this earlier, if there is blood flow. And this is perhaps a theoretical halacha, an infant even one day old, if there is a blood flow from the uterus area, Metama Benita has the ability to convey impurity, which means there isn't a minimum age when it comes to uterine blood flow bringing about defilement. When there's blood, there's blood. Abnormal blood flow called ziva has to be 10 days because you have to have 7 days of normal flow and then you have to enter into 3 days of abnormal flow. 7 plus 3 is 10. So theoretically, this baby has to be at least 10 days old. Again, most young ladies don't have any blood flow until they are 11 or 12 or 13 or what have you. When there is intimacy under three years old, it has no repercussion whatsoever in the impurity department. Again, we're only talking about the impurity department. Over three years old, intercourse is considered intercourse for a girl. So once she's three years old in one day, which means on her third birthday, she also conveys impurity to the one with whom she has intercourse. As we will explain it again, the extent of this law is conveying impurity. There are many other dimensions of a situation like this which we're not discussing here. Halacha is very compartmentalized. The Rambam covers every aspect of Allah. Moving on to the male, a one-day-old male who has an abnormal sexual flow, already conveys impurity. So if there is a real life flow coming from this child, even if he's newborn, it's a problem. Whether a person is a convert or whether a person is a slave who undertakes a certain part of his being becomes Jewish, or a Jew, so we have a convert who becomes 100% Jewish, a slave who is purchased or owned by a Jew during the time that slavery existed, who is Jewish to some extent, I mean, he's, he's actually 100% Jewish, he has to perform certain mitzvahs, or a Jew, these are the categories of people for whom the Nida and Zava law, from the normal menstrual laws and the abnormal menstrual laws, apply. But as we said earlier, it does not apply to a non-Jew. Hey, five, Svis Adam, Svis a person who was castrated, or one who was born sexually impotent, so therefore they are not able to reproduce and they don't have normal reproductive experiences. They can contract impurity because of a type discharge like other men, even though there isn't a normal discharge like every man has of semen and so on. But this is an abnormal disease-like flow. Now, the rule is, and we learned this earlier, when we talk about normal flow or abnormal flow, the flow color of a woman is red. The flow color of a man is white. If a woman is flowing a white color discharge, that's not considered impure. If a man is flowing a red color discharge, he should see a urologist, but that's not considered impure. For the woman, the red is the color of impurity. For the man, the white is the color of impurity. Zion 7. What about someone who is a tumtum or an androgynous, someone who has both signs, or we're not sure whether they are male or female, just to be safe, we give them the stringent applications of male and female. They become impure with a white discharge, like a man, and with a red discharge, like a woman. Again, their state of impurity is doubtful because we're not sure what they are. Therefore, we do not burn through them because they touched it. And there is no liability where one needs to actually be liable if somebody entered into the Holy Temple or somebody ate something holy because we're not sure that these people are really impure because we're not sure what gender they are. Even if you saw a white discharge, a red discharge, simultaneously. So now, because we're not sure which one they are, they just saw both. We should burn the coin food which became defiled. That's a more sacrifices. Because certainly there's defilement. But there's no violation for entering the holy temple or eating its holy food. You shall send forth until there is certain impurity of male or certain impurity of female. Or somebody touches the white and the red discharge simultaneously. He's still not culpable for the violation of the impurity of entering into the holy temple or it's holy foods. What if the person themselves, this tumtum or androgynous, touched the white and the red, then he is culpable for entering into the Besamidr. Moving right along to eight, the blood of a menstrual woman, or the blood of an abnormal flow for a woman, 
or the blood of a woman who gives birth. You don't need very much blood. Any amount will do. If somebody touches it or carries it. And the woman who has the blow in her nida state of abnormality, and the male. From the tradition we taught that her secretion brings impurity just as she brings impurity. When we talked about the prohibition of nida, we talked about what kind of colors nida blood could be in order for them to become designated as impure. There are five colors which are considered impure for a nida. And they are, he says here in the note, Pointing back to the laws of Isur Ebiya, Forbidden Intercourse, Chapter 5, Halacha 7. Red, black, bright saffron, the color of muddy water, and the color of diluted wine. Those are the five colors which are problematic. But if she saw a greenish color, that color is pure. This would not be like the saliva or other fluids which she discharges, which we're going to be talking about a little later. The difference is, it's a major difference, is that saliva collects and then is discharged as it drops, but it's like a wad of saliva, and this flows out and descends. Test 9, Isha, no. A woman who gives birth through C-section, Caesarean section, which means the child never passed through the womb. And the wall of the stomach gave forth blood, but it's not. Blood from the birth area. It's not uterine blood. Even though you can argue that it's blood from the stomach, still, that blood is impure. It carries the same impurity as the blood of a menstrual woman. A blood of a woman who gives birth normally, or an abnormal flow. Why? There can't be a birth without uterine blood. Because the uterus, its source, when it gives out blood, is impure. And therefore... This process, generally speaking, will give forth impure blood. But you know what? It doesn't affect the woman herself. Just the blood. The woman herself is pure. Until the blood flows through the womb. In the case of a cesarean birth, the blood never flowed through the womb. So the blood is impure, but the woman is pure. Which just came out altogether. A uterus which was removed or fell out. And just fell to the ground. So this woman has no more uterus. This woman will retain impurity until evening. Which means she has to immerse in the mikvah and she retains impurity until evening. So also the uterus. Which gave forth like two pearl-like drops of fluid. This woman is impure until evening. But she's not considered a menstrual woman. Until she sees one of the above mentioned colors. And this pearl-like drop is more whiter. She's not one of the above mentioned colors. What about other forms of fluid? Like hazea or hizia. What if the woman... What if she discharged one drop of white fluid? She remains pure. Because this certainly comes from outside the uterus. The discharge of a male, abnormal discharge of male is a major source, a primary source of impurity, like the Zub himself. This is his discharge, he is impure. And this discharge brings about an impurity through touching and carrying, even the littlest amount. We learned earlier that there are various sightings. One sighting of a has a more lenient level of impurity. Only touching makes it impure, not carrying. And would become like healthy semen which becomes impure through touching. Whether we're talking about the Zod, is applicable, this law is applicable to an adult or to a child. So also the cots and the chairs upon which he sat. Between one sighting and two sightings, to hate him are pure. Why? Because the male is not referred to as a full-fledged Zod. Until he has had the second sighting. As we explained extensively, in the laws of those who still lack the atonement of the sacrifices and the Rambam, their rights, that this refers to an instance when the time that elapsed from the beginning of the discharge until his end was as long as it takes to I'm sorry, I was reading from the wrong note, please forgive me. As explained in Hilchas Mechuzay Kapora, that when a person experiences one Zav discharge, it's considered as a seminal discharge, and he's not yet considered to have contracted the more severe Zav impurity. If he has other, one other similar discharge, that would be two, he is considered a lesser Zav, and if he has a third discharge, he's considered a Zav in the complete sense of the term. So there are gradations. Ria Rishayna, you're Gimel 13, Ria Rishayna, no, I'm sorry, I'm still in the middle of 12. Ria Rishayna, if he saw one discharge, which had as much as two within it, only if somebody moved that second drop, would it be considered a contraction of impurity. The first sighting of a Mitzayda brings about impurity like carrying. 
any leper and any flow of anybody who's impure due to exposure to a human corpse. Leprosy is compared to azov, mazov, gomer, just as a complete total series of his flow brings about impurity by carrying it. So also a mitzayda who has a discharge, a leper who has a discharge. His first sighting brings about impurity by carrying it. Yudalit. Now we come to different forms of discharge. Reik hazov. What about the saliva of azov? Sheikh Mazari, what about semen of Azov? Not abnormal discharge, but real semen. What about urine, which is a big source of impurity, because it comes through the same area, both by male and female. Call Echad Mishloshkan, all of the above, which is against saliva, semen and urine. These are the primary source of impurity by Torah law. Again, these days we don't have these observances because we don't have a base on English. Brings about impurity in the smallest amount by touching and carrying. How do we know? Because it says by spitting, by saliva. There's actually a verse that says, If the pure person will spit on the impure person. I'm sorry, if the impure person, if the, the Zav, the impure person, will spit upon the pure person. Now, a situation in the beginning of the AIDS epidemic, where people with AIDS went and they would spit upon people and try to convey whether it does convey AIDS or it doesn't. I'm not making any judgments. I'm just saying that this idea of one spitting upon the other is something that we dealt with extensively in our modern age. So we have the saliva or the urine. or the semen. All of the above has to contain within it some type of Zav discharge, and therefore they are considered impure. Whether it's the Zav male, or the nida, the menstrual woman, or the woman who gives birth, or the abnormal flow of a woman, all of the above, ruko, their saliva, maybe not in the urine, abtumok is always considered a primary source of impurity like the above mentions of male. Whatever it says in these laws, the zov, although it's a male expression, includes male, female, normal birth, it's a catchphrase for all of them. The closing paragraph in this chapter. The Rambam says, When we talk about the Zov category, there are seven fluids which are considered fluid that we have to know what the halacha is. Three fluids are considered primary source of impurity. We just talked about them. And they are rukai, the saliva, the semen, all of the above three, they convey defilement to Adam, to humans, and utensils, the kosher with the slightest amount. So those are the three biggies. We just explained in 14 and 15. Three of them are more minor, yet they are impure. A secondary impurity, like the offspring of impurity. And these are they. What's the second list? The second list would be the tears of his eyes, and the blood of his wound, and the woman's milk. All of the above, they are like impure liquids, which are lesser potent than the first three. They can't defile a person, because only the primary can defile a person. They can defile utensils and objects. We did receive them certainly by rabbinic law. As we did explain, and believe me, we will explain. And then there are three liquids which are simply pure, and they are, as they all say, sweat of a person, and pus of a person. When you have a wound with pus in it, it's a terrible thing, but it's not impure. And you talk about human feces, again. It's, it is what it is, but it's not impure. The above three, which is sweat, pus, and feces, are treated like the sweat, pus, and feces of any other person. What about phlegm, spittle, and mucus? and saliva of the nose? They should be treated like saliva. When blood flows from the male organ, blood flows from the mouth. These are simply wounds, and they have nothing to do with impurity. Again, we learned that the flow from the male organ is white. And the flow from the female organ is red. But when a male flows red, you should see a doctor. There must be some kind of wound that's causing that blood. What if a person is sucking a wound and he spits out the blood of the wound? This person being that he's in the category of impure person, then that blood is like his saliva. Because when you suck out blood, blood can never be sucked out without some saliva within it. And therefore we learn that saliva is a major source of impurity. End of chapter 1. Rambam, Mishneh Torah, Hilcha is the laws of Mitame, Mishkav, Umoshav, the defilement by certain impure people of the objects they sit on or the objects they lie on. This is a whole section of impurity being conveyed by a certain group of people. And in the beginning of chapter 1, 
we enumerated <coughs> the four members of this group. They are Zov, the male who has an abnormal sexual flow, similar to today's gonorrhea. The Hazova, or the female, who has an abnormal sexual flow. Those are the two abnormal conditions, as well as two very normal conditions. A menstrual woman called Nida, a woman has a menstrual flow every month, as long as she's young and not pregnant, and that's a normal condition which allows conception to take place, and the woman who gives birth. The birthing process brings about a level of spiritual impurity, even though there's no greater sincha than a birth in creating a new life. So those are the four categories. Zov and Zova, the abnormal male-female sexual flow, abnormal. Nida, the menstrual cycle, a woman who gives birth. <clears throat> now in Peter Shaney, in chapter 2, we have some qualifications, some details. Dam Nida Zova, the blood of a woman who menstruates, the blood of a woman who gives forth an abnormal flow, and a woman who gives birth. These three categories, so we've talked about three out of the four categories. Which category did we, did we not speak of? We did not speak of the male. But the three female categories of Nida, Zova, and Yeledes, Metame, Lach, Yobesh, convey impurity when the substance that emerges is moist or dry. Because when substance flows forth from the body, sooner or later, it becomes coagulated and dry. So these substances carry impurity, whether they are moist or dry. Avo, however, that fourth category, which is Zebe, the flow, that abnormal flow shall Zova, of a male who has a abnormal flow. The same goes not only for the emission of Zov, but Verukai, his spit. We talked about this in the earlier chapter. Vishikh Vazara, his semen. They do not bring about defilement. Ella calls Manchulach as long as they're moist. But when the above list, and that is the flow, the abnormal flow of the male, his spittle or his semen, Yobesh if they become too dry, dried out, Yesemidai, mucho dry, they do not convey defilement because they're all dried out. So it's like the defilement dissipated. Yeah, Kamal, how dry is dry? So the Rambam gives, brings down the shear, brings down the test. If you take warm water and you soak the substance of which we speak in warm water, may ace lace for, for 24 hours, and it reverts back to its original moist condition after being soaked in warm water for 24 hours, that would, even if that was not done, still bring about impurity as if it was moist. I believe that's the meaning. If the water was warm to begin with, at the end of 24 hours, of course, the water cools up. That's okay too. All of the above are matters of tradition. They're not specifically written in the Torah. So again, just to review, we have the blood of Nida, Zova, and Yeledes. Brings about defilement whether they are moist or dry, but that which emits from a Zov, that abnormal male flow, his spittle or his semen, has to be moist, but if it's too dry, it can't affect impurity. What's the test, the litmus test of too dry? If you would soak it in warm water, would it revert back to liquid? Next case, we learned earlier in chapter 1 about the saliva of an impure person. That the saliva of an impure person conveys impurity. And that would be in chapter 1, 14, talking about saliva. So therefore, Pishton, Shetvatu Nida, if you're talking about flax, which, which a woman spun during her Nida state, and again, remember, we're talking about based on Nida's purposes. We're talking about coming into the Holy Temple, eating Truma, eating sacrifices. That's the sanctity we're talking about here. So flax was spun by a woman in a Nida state. Hamisite Torah, one who moves it even without touching it, as we explained in Hilchus Tumas Mess, that when an object imparts impurity when carried, it also imparts impurity when it's moved, even though it was not touched, if it was in a basket or what have you. Still, just because she spun it, it does not make it impure. However, but if it was moist, because the women, who, when they would spin, they would use spittle, they would use spit to make it happen faster, then it does bring about impurity. Why? Not because she spun it, but because of the saliva from her mouth, because we learned that saliva is a primary source of impurity. Again, we're talking about laws of purity and impurity. We're not talking about hygiene here. If a male, where they flow, and we learned earlier, by the way, that the word Zob is all-inclusive, placed his mouth at the edge of a drinking cup, and then he says, nah, I'm not going to have this. Shall I say not to drink it? The question is, is his saliva now on the cup, and does it convey impurity? That's the issue. 
says the Rambam in Alocha, one who moves this cup is pure. Because not enough saliva has been conveyed to the liquid in the cup. Or, or no saliva at all. However, if this person drank even a little bit, then the saliva has to go and become mixed with the liquid. Therefore, anybody who moves it, Tomei is now impure, because it has the saliva of the Zob, because of the saliva of the mouth of the Zob. Dalit along the same line, Zob if a Zob bit into a loaf of bread, via Sabotso or an onion, those who move the bread or the onion are pure because the saliva does not necessarily come onto the bread or the onion. But, Noshach, if he bit, a zucchini or a cucumber, which is not a dry substance like bread or onion, somebody who moves that cucumber or that zucchini is impure. Why? Because of the saliva of the mouth of the Zob, which became mixed into the cucumber or the zucchini, and there's no other way. What about, hey, what about shells of beans or vetch, which were cut off, says the commentaries here, cut off means bitten off, by a literally by an idol worshiper or by a non-Jew. And I'm going to give an explanation as soon as we finish this paragraph. One who moves them is now impure because it has the saliva of the idol worshiper of Honda or the non-Jew. Now the question is, didn't we learn earlier that non-Jews do not convey impurity? Didn't we learn earlier that the laws of impurity do not affect non-Jews? So what's going on here? says the Rambam, and we will learn about this in great detail in the last paragraph, paragraph 10 of this chapter, that yes, you are correct. By Torah law, there is no impurity for an Anjou. It's, it's a Jewish thing. The Torah said Jews. Ish, Ish refers to Jews. Shekol, however, there's a rabbinic decree brought down, issued by our sages, discussed in Tractate Nida, and we're going to discuss the details of this decree shortly. In paragraph 10, you're going to have more details than you want to know. Shekol, our sages made a rabbinic decree that any non-Jew is kizovim will be by rabbinic law like azov. Like someone with a flow. The whole debrayim for all appropriate rabbinic matters, which means it's not a Torah impurity, it's a rabbinic decree impurity, which is legislated for a reason, which we'll turn, which we'll talk about. Says the but as we will explain. Where are we going to explain? In paragraph 10. So I need everybody to be patient and wait till we get to paragraph 10, where we will explain why the sages issued this decree that all non Jews by rabbinic law convey the impurity of Azov. Haklipin Shebish Wokin. What if you find shells in the marketplace and you're not sure who bit into them, whether they were Jewish shell preparers or Gentile shell preparers, because again, we talk about rabbinic decree, the rule is in this law, you always follow the majority. So if the majority of those who prepare these shells are Jews, then they're not impure. If the majority are non-Jews, then we have this rabbinic decree, which we will define a little later. Vav 6, What if the blood of an impure person, one of the above list, Zov, Zovo, Nido, Yodas, blood became mixed with water. So what's the deal? Is it blood or is it water? In the litmus test is, does it look like blood? Or does it look like water? If it no longer looks like blood, it looks like water, it's all pure. What if blood became mixed into pure blood? In other words, uterine blood is impure. But blood from a cut is pure? What if blood became mixed into blood? Will be iron or into red wine? So you have no idea what is the impure substance and what is the pure substance. I made a bracha earlier, I'm just going to have a sip of water. So here we have to guesstimate. Right, and I say, we look at it, we see it, we evaluate it, and we assume, for the sake of this conversation, that the pure blood, was water. Would that much water dilute the color of the blood? Behain, similarly speaking, rake, tome the spittle, the saliva of an impure person, which became mixed into water. So spittle has this definition where it remains coagulated. If it is coagulated, as it was naturally, if it maintains its state of coagulation, then the spittle brings about impurity. Remember we learned that saliva or spittle is a primary source of impurity. But if it just melts into the water and it's not recognizable, it lost its coagulation. Nature, if its color is a normal color, it's all pure. If it got involved with other saliva, so you have no idea whether it's the impure saliva or the saliva of an impure person or the general saliva that's in this spittoon. You evaluate it as if it's water. Water, if it were water, would it dissolve it? Would it lose the color? One of the primary sources of the impurity of these four people are their urine, which is a primary source of impurity. What if urine of an impure person got mixed into urine 
into water rather in bottle marayan if their look was nullified. It doesn't have a urine look. It has a water look and it's all pure. And if not, it's impure. It's not a beyond what if it's mixed with wine. It may or with pure urine. Could be urine of a lot of people. A urine what have you? Rayon You imagine as if it's water. And would it have been dissolved had it been water? Now, what if the urine of an impure Jewish person becomes mixed with the urine of a non-Jew, which we said earlier, and we will explain later, as a rabbinic decree of rabbinic dissolving purity, we follow the majority. Case for example, clean a vessel. Show which Jews and non-Jews would both use as a urinal, which would collect water. And back then, we learned, for example, about seven detergents. That urine is one of those detergents. Urine is a very powerful. Uh, essence which has a lot of practical use, and therefore people back then would save the urine for certain purposes. In Rebbe, because if the majority of the people whose urine is collected here are non-Jews, then it's all impure because of this rabbinic decree of Zob, which we're going to define in paragraph 10. In Rebbe, but if the majority are Israelites, it's all pure. Next to the next, what if it's 50-50? It's all impure. The same thing is if the urine of one Gentile got mixed up with the urine of one Jew, it depends on the majority. The majority rules. Zion, what if somebody needed urine for a certain Process, for example, as a detergent, we can ask for urine from anywhere. We're not concerned that they belong to a menstrual woman, for example, who, in based on the time, their urine would be impure. Because in that era, Jewish women would never collect the urine when they were in that state. They would only do that if they were in a non nido state. An earthenware utensil or a urinal. Where the zov or zov of the abnormal male female flow would deposit their urine into it, and then they washed it once, and they washed it a second time. Still, the liquid which was used for washing maintained the impurity because it still has the substance of the urine of the zov of the zov. Or partially but when they wash it a third time, so they're not pure. Whether they washed it with water, they washed it with pure urine, it makes no difference because we're talking about removing the urine of the earlier deposit of the zov or zov. There's no moisture left. Here's an interesting law in halacha. We learned in Halacha that a Zobo, someone who is a biblical Zobo, has to count seven days following the termination of the show. And then she has to immerse in a mikvah. What if at the very end of the seven days she's about to go into the mikvah when suddenly she feels that the urine within her is descending into her bladder area and it's about to emerge from her body. But at that moment she descended into the mikvah of and she immersed. Then she came out of the mikvah. What happens when she comes out of the mikvah? She's pure. After she immersed, she went to urinated. The question is, being that the urine was so close to emerging, prior to the immersion, was this pre-immersion urine or was it post-immersion urine? That's the question, which is a very interesting halachic question. It's a true doubt. Whether urine is only considered legally human urine once it emerges from the body, but not when it's about to emerge. What's the question? If after it emerged, that's the litmus test. It did it come out of the body or not? I'm sorry. If after it was moved from the source, it came. And at that moment, she was still a state of Zoba. Or actually, if, if after the actual emergence is what counts. She tell you where she would be pure. So the answer is, it's doubtful. Again, similarly speaking, now that we learned that there's a rabbinic decree concerning non-Jews and all of their body fluids, a idol-worshipping woman, or a Gentile woman, whose urine came forth and was about to come through, but it didn't. When his guide on, she converted. And she immersed in a mikvah, which is one of the main fundamental acts of a convert. After she immersed in the mikvah, she urinated. We have the same doubt. Do we consider the moment of movement from the source? In that case, would be impure. Or do we talk about the actual emergence? They're like the urine of a Jew, which are pure. Yud 10, here is that closing paragraph, which talks about this rabbinic decree, where although by Torah law, impurity does not apply to non-Jews, by rabbinic law, for a specific reason, our rabbis enacted a decree. Very interesting. So first of all, he says in the beginning of 10, slaves, and again during the time, when there was slavery, the Torah talks about an Ebed Kanani, a non-Jew, who, for example, is conquered in a war, and he becomes a slave to a Jew. Immediately, this male or female slave is put through a process called the conversion. The slaves are asked whether they want to become Jews or not. They're given one year to decide. If not, then they move on. And presumably, they would want to, because Jews were much more kind to their slaves than many of the non-Jewish nations. So being that they immerse in the mikvah and they take on mitzvahs, they become, to a great extent, a Jew, even though there are certain mitzvahs that they don't take on until they become liberated. So Havodim, slaves, Mitamim, do bring about defilement. Ziba, in the case of Ziba, or Benida, or Beleida, in the case of the abnormal flow of a female, the normal flow of the female, the birth process, just like a Jew. Why? Because they're Jews. They are Jews with the limitations of a slave. 
Abel, however, non-Jews, we learned earlier, ain't the common, there is no defilement process. Like Beziba, not when a non-Jewish woman has an abnormal sexual flow, but like Benitas, or a menstrual flow, but like Beleda, or birth. This is Din Torah by Torah law. We talked about this much earlier. Shanem, as it says, This is a verse. Speak to the children of Israel. Say to them, Ish, Ish, he is of, any man who will be as of, etc. B'nai Yisrael, Metamin B'ziba, being that this verse says, B'nai Yisrael, speak to the children of Israel. It is something for Jews. Not for non-Jews. So a non-Jew does not have any law of impurity. However, that's by Torah law. But our sages, Gozru issued a rabbinic decree. And this became part of mainstay of life. Over all, literally if you have the word, it means idol worshippers. In a broader sense, it means non-Jews. That by rabbinic decree, for a specific person, I'm sorry, for a specific purpose, which we'll talk about, they have a rabbinic application of Zov for all rabbinic matters. Scoring this applies to males, unikavis, and females, provided that. As long as the male non-Jew passed his ninth birthday, and the female passed her third birthday or up. And this, these are the ages which were defined many, many times earlier. For meaningful sexual activity for a male would be only nine plus, for a female would only be three plus. For the purposes of halacha. So therefore, this decree only applies to a male 9 plus and a female 3 years old and plus. But minors under these ages, like this rabbinic decree does not apply. Because the logic and reasoning beyond this, behind this decree, has to do with minimizing sexual activity between Jews and non-Jews. And therefore, this state of impurity was decreed. Here the Rambam spells it out from the oral law. The Rambam is not making this up, by the way. The main thrust of this decree was, We didn't want Jewish children hanging around idol worshippers who, in many of their cultures, would readily molest children. And therefore, when parents would know that they convey impurity, that alone would be a reminder of this issue. So this was actually a decree passed in order to keep separation because of intimacy issues specifically with children. Now it doesn't mean that there can't be a Jew who molests children. Anything could be. What it means is there were certain cultures where child molestation was a given. But less than this, under the age of nine for a male, under the age of three for a female, the intimacy is not considered halachically intimacy. So therefore, this halachic concern does not apply. Of course, we have to be watchful over children younger than that as well. Now, he says, this decree was issued by our sages at a certain point in history when this became a problem. And when this decree was issued, the decree was not issued, including the semen. Although, we learned earlier that semen of a Jewish impure person carries impurity. The semen itself retained the purity of Torah law. Why didn't they already throw in a decree that the semen should also be impure? It would, help, it would further help the cause here. The answer is, there had to be some level of obvious recognition that this is a rabbinic decree. Because everybody knows, anybody who knows anything basic about the laws of Torah in this regard knows that if there would be biblical zavin, if there would be a case of biblical abnormal flow, then their semen would be a primary source of impurity. Like the semen of the zav would make no difference. The non-Jew, the Jew would be all the same. Why is it so important that we know it's rabbinic? Because now that we know that this is a rabbinic decree, a very important byproduct comes about. They will not come to burn Tuma and holy objects because of it. And we've talked about this again and again, but we haven't explained it for a while. So let me explain clearly what the concern here is. Tuma is holy Kohen food. Kadoshim are holy sacrifice food. You can't just destroy that food. It's too holy. The only condition that these foods can be destroyed is if they have to be destroyed. If by Torah law they became defiled, for example, then there's no choice under certain conditions. Rabbinic decree is not strong enough to destroy food that should not be destroyed by Torah law because it's holy. So that's why we want to create an alarm. Hey, everybody, this is a rabbinic decree. Don't burn tumah over it if somebody touched it. If a non-Jew touched it or, or holy foods. So we learn that the flow of the non-Jew or the flow of the nida, ziva, or leda of the abnormal, of the normal menstrual flow, of the abnormal flow, or the birth of a daughter of non-Jews, and the person themselves, the non-Jewish woman themselves, even though they're pure of the blood, in other words, we're not talking about here a non-Jew who has this condition. We're talking about all non-Jews should rabbinically be considered as if they have this condition. There should be no intimacy between Jews and non-Jews. 
especially children. These all become rabbinic, and that's the buzzword, the keyword, rabbinic primary sources of impurity, whether or not they have these conditions. Therefore, if somebody with this rabbinic condition enters into the base of English, enters into a setting of holy food, there is no halachic violation biblically because it's only a rabbinic decree. God forbid you don't burn the truma because of that. They all bring defilement to people and utensils by touching, but it's rabbinic law. And they defile people by carrying like the laws of Azar for all purposes, all intents and purposes. But the caveat is, it's a rabbinic level of impurity, so it would never cause the burning of holy food unnecessarily. Commissioner Yarno, as we explained. Now he says, what about the blood? Hanochis of a non-Jewish woman, is like her spittle, or like her urine, she brings about a defilement when it's moist, not when it's dry, as we learned earlier. End of chapter 2. Rambam, Mishnah Torah, Hilchais, the laws of Metame, Mishka, Bumoshev, those people who bring about defilement when they lay down on something, for example, somebody lays down on a stack of cots, Bumoshev, or they sit on something, sit on a chair, or even a stack of chairs, and we learned in chapter 1 of this series of laws that we are generally within this section of laws referring to four categories of people. That was in the very beginning of chapter 1. Zov, someone who has an abnormal sexual flow. Zova, that's a male. Zova is a female. Nida, Nida is a woman who has a normal menstrual flow that also brings about this level of impurity. And Yoledes, a woman who gives birth. So we have the male, female who have an abnormal sexual flow. We have the woman who menstruates, and that's very normal. And the woman who gives birth. All of these are, we learned earlier, called an Av Hatuma. They are a primary source of impurity. We're talking about primarily Beis Hamigdash and holy food laws. And therefore, they bring about the impurity of utensils when we touch them. People, when we touch and carry them, laying on something brings about defilement, sitting on something, even a saddle, something above them. That's the category that we're learning about. Now, we're adding to this, we have the idea of Nida, which is the woman who menstruates. She brings about impurity and prevents herself from entering the base on Bigdush and eating holy foods. Now, there is an outgrowth of that, Aleph Bayel Nida. What if someone who is intimate with a Nida, with a woman who's in the middle of her menstrual cycle, she conveys impurity to him. Can Nida, he becomes like this woman. Shehu, which would be the category of impurity, of Av, of a primary source of impurity, Hatuma, Shotorah, biblical. It's not a rabbinic decree. It's a biblical law. And of course, all of these are laws without reason, as we talked earlier, and so on. What is the definition here? Metame, Kalim Bimaga, it causes utensils to become impure through contact. Or Metame Odom, and people become impure Bimasa or Bimaga by carrying them or touching them. Or Metame Behesit, and also moving an object by one who is Bayonida. One who is intimate with a menstrual woman causes impurity. Or Metame Mishka, Bumerika, and also laying and writing also conveys impurity so that the boel nida, the one who is intimate with the nida, is like the nida for these purposes. Now he says, but there is a difference. The cot or the bed, which the one who is intimate with the nida lies on, is not as severe as the bed that the nida herself lies on. Or the same goes for the saddle which he rides on is not as severe as the saddle which the nida herself rides on. Because if you're talking about the surface on which somebody lies, or the surface on which somebody rides, which was pressed by Anida av satuma that creates a primary source of tumor. So the mishkab itself becomes a primary source of tumor. The bed, the cot, the saddle. <coughs> However, the man who was intimate with her, his bed or his saddle, Vlad Hatuma has a leniency, where it becomes not a primary source of impurity, but a secondary source of impurity called the offspring of impurity. A derivative. <coughs> just like a utensil which he touched <coughs> the utensil <coughs> has a level of a derivative which no longer can impart impurity to people nor to utensils because the process weakens as it goes from stage to stage what does a derivative of impurity or a second stage impart impurity to <coughs> merely food and drink so that the boel nida the man who is intimate with the nida is one notch down in the severity of the impurity than the nida herself that's the message why was the defilement of his bed downgraded 
from the defilement of her bed, where her bed becomes a rishon, a primary source of impurity, can defile utensils and people, and his cannot, only food and drink, there is a reason which is connected to the expression of the verse in the Torah. Because with regard to the man who is intimate with the woman who is a nida, the verse says, quote, If her status of nida comes upon him, he becomes impure for seven days. Regarding him, it says, Anything he lies upon will become defiled. Now the question is, Meaning that the verse says that her impurity is conveyed to him, then obviously he defiles anything he lays down on. Why would it be repeated that in the case of one who is intimate with the nida? The Torah repeats, Anything that he lies upon will become impure. Before the oral tradition, we learn that this repetition is for the following purpose. That the Torah tears it away, takes it away, removes it from the severe category of nida, where it would be able to defile even people, and even utensils of sloy, and it connects it, it makes it connected to, dependent on, a much lesser form of impurity. That if he lays down on something, it should be a second stage or derivative of impurity. And he should not defile other people and utensils. Ella, what is the definition of that lesser stage of impurity? That it can only contaminate food and liquids. Like all other, all these, details were, these details were not yet learned thoroughly. We've only touched upon them, and trust me, we will learn them in great detail a little bit later. Moving right along again, what we're trying to define here are the various categories of people who cause their beds and their chairs to become impure. Whether somebody is intimate with a menstrual woman, with a woman who is menstruating, prior to her immersion in a mikveh, or the lesser level zoba, which is called zobaktana. We learned earlier quite a few times that with zoba there are gradations. She sees a sight of zob blood once, she says Zobaktana twice, she says Zobaktana three times, it makes her a major Zoba Zobakdela. What happens if she says Zobaktana? She's a minor Zoba. Shemeres, Yain, Kenegad Yain. For every impure day, she has to have one pure day. One for one. Whereas a Zobakdela needs to have seven pure days. And the whole nine yards of the whole system of purifying. So here, if somebody is intimate with Anita, or with this Zobaktana, which is Shemeres, Yain, Kenegad Yain, or a woman who just gave birth, which is also a form of impurity, because in chapter one, Halacha one, we learned a whole list of people. And they were the Zob and the Zoba. The Nida and the Yeledas, as I explained in this introduction. Now, furthermore, what kind of intimacy are we talking about for the purpose of intimacy with this woman making the man impure? The answer is any kind of intimacy. Ben Kedarkam, whether the traditional form of intimacy, Ben Shalai Kedarkam, or the non-traditional form of intimacy, which was defined much earlier. Echad Hamara, whether it's only the beginning of the act of intimacy, where there's just a beginning of penetration, or there's full insertion. Any one of the above causes impurity. Ben Godel Shabu whether the male who's being intimate is an adult, and the female is not. The male is not an adult, and the female is, makes no difference. All the above conditions convey impurity from the nida to the one who is intimate with the nida. Now, as we learned many times earlier, when does this apply? Whenever we have matters of intimacy and matters of intercourse, there's always a statement that the male who engages in this intimacy must be a minimum of nine years old, because that is the beginning of intimacy in the systems of halacha for a male. And the female must be at least three years old. And this we learned many, many times earlier that the halachic age is different for a male and a female. Minimum halachic age for a male is nine, for a female it's three. What, what context are we talking about? Let us remember. We're talking about the context of the woman who is one of the above conveying her impurity to the man who is intimate with her. She has to be at least three, he has to be at least nine. Now obviously if she's 33 and he's 99, that's fine. We're talking about at least. But less than these ages, there is no conveyance of impurity. A man cannot take on the impurity from the woman he's intimate with. Because it's not considered an act of intimacy. Because one of them are too young. What impurity is conveyed? The impurity that's conveyed when one touches a woman who's in a state of nida for based on English purposes. Again, we're talking primarily for based on English purposes. Shuhuv Lord, because this would be a second degree or an offshoot of impurity. Ve'inaob is not a primary or father of impurity. So that is one who is boyel nida. That is one who is intimate with a woman who is in her state of menstruation. Or a shemeres yem kenegad yem. Or a yeledus. A woman who is a Zobakhtan, a minor form of Zob, or a woman who gives birth. Those are the three categories. Bechain, and so also he has the fourth category. Bechain, if someone is intimate with Hazov, a male who has an abnormal sexual flow, and he's under the age of nine, it's like touching him. And one who touches Hazov, or who is intimate with Hazov, has the same exact law, which means you have these minimum ages for the male, the minimum age for the female. 
So again, the context of chapter 3, the context of this section of halacha is impurity of these categories. We're not talking about why they're being intimate. Is it right? That's not the conversation. We learned about that in the Surabiyah, in the prohibited relationships. We learned about relationships that are permitted, relationships that are prohibited, and relationships that are uh, obscene. That's not the category here. The category is, does impurity become conveyed? Dalit for Hanida, a woman who's in a state of Nida. Menstruation, the Hazaba, a woman who has an abnormal flow, or what we call a Zalbaktana, she only saw once or twice, and she has to observe one day or two days of purity. And a woman who gives birth. These categories are the categories that we're talking about here. Now that Ambam tells us an interesting factor. Even though she didn't visually see blood, they all bring about defilement retroactively. What is Me'es Le'es? To a 24-hour period. It's called in Halachic Lingo, a misles. That's just a mispronunciation of Me'es Le'es. A misles. 24 hours. Or, it alternately goes back to the last time an inspection was made and she declared herself pure. This is the definition of a mesles for a nida. And now he spells it out. A woman who was pure, and we talk in halacha, we talk about the idea of chazaka. She has an assumption of purity. Now these laws we learned in great detail earlier, and we are alluding to them now. Many women would have a fixed moment when their menstrual cycle would come. Others would not. So we're talking about a woman who does not have a fixed cycle. So she has to be concerned much more than the woman who does have a fixed cycle. She doesn't need to be concerned outside of that area. These are in general terms. So here we're talking about a situation where the woman does not have a besit, a fixed cycle. And she inspected herself to make sure. Again, we're talking about laws of purity here. She needs to eat of, of the sacrifice. She needs to eat truma. She checked herself the chakras in the morning. She found that she had absolutely no signs of impurity. She's one of the above categories of people. Or possibly. Then around noon, she inspected herself again. I guess she needed to eat lunch. And she was going to have some of the categories of holy foods. And she found there was blood. So now the question is, we know that 7 a.m. she inspected herself and there was no blood. 12 noon, there is blood. What's the deal? Anything that she touched that had to maintain a state of purity from after 7 o'clock, which was her first inspection, until the time of the second inspection, which in my example was 12 o'clock, are retroactively impure, which means we go to 7.01. We know that 7 o'clock she was pure, then anything before that we're not concerned about. Now what are we being concerned about? We're being concerned about anything she touched because we're talking about based on the purity. Holy temple purity, sacrifice purity, truma purity. So we have to know when she is assumed to be impure, when she is not assumed to be impure. And so also, if she inspected herself today, she found herself impure. After two or three days, I'm sorry, she inspected herself today and found out that she's pure. And after two or three days, she inspected. She found blood, anything that was pure. She also, she produced, or was involved with, from the time of her inspection. And she found blood, until 24 hours before that, to are impure. So here we have the 24-hour period. A cloth that is used for inspection purposes after intimacy. That's like an inspection if it's pure. But the cloth that is used to inspect before intimacy, is not considered like a real inspection cloth, because we're concerned that she's not thorough, because she was concerned if she would be thorough, she would not be able to engage in intimacy. And these are multi, multi-detailed laws. And we're just touching upon them here. Hey, Isha, she has love Beset, a woman who does have a fixed cycle, which in Talmudic time was very common. There are Saddam, Bishas Vesta, and she saw blood emerge at that period of her fixed cycle. She has a fixed cycle, and that's when she saw, she saw blood. Now, does it carry back retroactively to the last time she inspected herself? No. Because she has a fixed cycle. And here we're going to learn an expression that's going to be repeated again and again and again in these laws. Daya Shaita. Her time is sufficient, which means it's sufficient to declare her impure now. She does not become retroactively impure. So the word Daya means now is sufficient to declare her impure. What if the time of her expected set time arrived? She did not inspect herself. Because I guess she didn't need to. And after a few days go by, she did inspect herself. She found blood. How far do we have to go back? Retroactively. She does have to become retroactively impure. Meaning, anything she dealt with becomes impure. And she takes on the assumption of a menstruating woman from the time her fixed set time of her period came. So if her fixed time was, for example, I'm just making this up, every three weeks on a Tuesday, and that time came and she didn't inspect herself, and 
she realized that there was a show of Nida blood on Thursday, she has to go back two days. This is the impurity of the set time, which we talk about all the time. It's set the time is set. So, because it's set, any other time than that has leniency. Where are we? If she found herself pure, if she checked after the set time, then she reassumes her position of pure. And again, you have leniency with a woman who has a set vesset. Generally speaking, the Rambam lays down a law here. He gives us a scientific reality. And there's a lot of discussion between other halacha commentators whether this is mandatory or not. But the Rambam here says, Targish Biatsmo, as a rule, she's going to feel certain physical symptoms, symptoms either at or prior to the onset of her menstrual cycle. And different strokes for different folks. Mithaheches, for some people, she will yawn. That's going to be her cycle. She gets into a yawning stretch. A misakeshes, or she sneezes. She gets into a sneezing fit. So she knows that the cycle is approaching. Or she just feels very heavy, a strain at the stomach area or the lower body area. And she knows that this period is coming. Or she feels a trembling sensation overcoming her body. She feels a very heaviness of the head, like a headache. She feels that her limbs are heavy. These are various symptoms that a woman will feel just prior or just at the onset of menstruation. Sometimes. Within this, some women, as soon as they have one of these symptoms, they're going to immediately see the sign of blood they're going to show. Yes, Isha, and there are women who will wake after these symptoms come on, show an hour, a time or two hours, a period or two periods, a while or two hours. And then, sooner or later, she will see the blood towards the end of the expected time. And therefore, if this woman that we're talking about was accustomed to seeing her show always at the beginning of the set period, then because she usually saw in the beginning, then any holy foods that she worked with at the beginning of this cycle have to be assumed to be impure. But if she was accustomed to seeing this show at the end of that period, then we can assume that anything holy and pure that she worked with during this period are still assumed pure. Because sometimes she would see it later. She really has to be suspicious from the time that she usually sees it until she actually sees the show of blood. Now we come into a whole different category which also has a lot of application in contemporary Nida law. But again, this is primarily based on the Gdush law. This is not contemporary Nida law. What if a woman discovers a stain on her clothing? Now, the truth of the matter is that when a woman sees a stain on her clothing or on a sheet or on anything, she has no idea where that blood came from. It could have come from a mosquito. It could have come from someone else. It could have been on the sheet. It could have been a cut. So, actually, the whole Kesem law, the whole stain law is a rabbinic decree. But here we're going to learn a lot of details about it. Kesem, if she sees a stain, we have to assume if the stain is big enough that she is impure. We have to assume that it came from uterine bleeding as long as there is logic to that assumption. To Mayel and she takes on impurity, retroactively, meaning any holy thing she worked with become impure as well. Until she knows of her last inspection. Remember, we're talking about based on purity. Garments would also be immersed in a mikvah. The garment upon which the stain was found, is retroactively impure. Anything that is associated with that garment also becomes impure. The outcome of how much retroactive I until she says, I remember clearly, last Tuesday, that I thoroughly inspected this garment. It was stain free. Even if she washed this garment but did not double check it, it takes on impurity from before the moment of washing retroactively until the time that she did check it. Even if there was moisture on the stain, why would you have to go retroactive? If there was moisture on the stain, that means it's a fresh stain. According to what we learned earlier, not necessarily. It could bring about, and it does bring about impurity retroactively. Until her last certain checking, which was pure, how could that be? What would the moisture be there from? Because I can argue beyond him, that the stain was old. Now it became exposed to liquid, so it's moist. We learned earlier that that could happen. Now he's going to learn a list of people who do not have to go back retroactive. All women who categorically do not have to go back retroactively, their stain should be treated just like the show. We do not have to go back. This entire list of women, who are 
becoming impure retroactively, they also don't whether they saw blood, they saw then their impurity, but Thomas defiles Mishka, Ben as well, Omerikov and Asad as well, Lamafria retroactively, the Tama Odom to make people and garments impure, Chayrukas also their saliva, Omerikov and the urine, we learned about this earlier, Tamei and Lamafria are retroactively impure, Afilu Klecheres, Hamukov, Sami Posel, the Thomas Esel Lamafria, even an earthenware vessel which was firmly sealed with a seal also brings about impurity retroactively, but they do not retroactively cause the man they were intimate with to become impure, because of the laws of intimacy with a menstrual woman, but only because of touching. If a man is intimate with her after she discovered the stain, then it makes her impure because of the category of Bo El Nida of being intimate with Anida. Test the final paragraph of this chapter. Interesting law. Meuberias, a woman who's pregnant. Pregnancy is not a state of impurity. It happens to be a state of purity. Childbirth is impurity. One of the four categories of impurity is your latest childbirth. What if a pregnant woman shahits you where the fetus extended its hand, threatening to be born? And then it returned its hand back into the womb. It's actually something which was described in the Chumash. With Peretz and Zorach. The mother should be considered impure as if she gave birth. This level of impurity where a hand emerges and then is retracted. Or the impurity that goes back retroactively 24 hours. Or the impurity we discussed earlier, which goes back to the last inspection period. And the impurity of set times where her period were expected. And all of the laws of impurity of stains. The entire above list is only rabbinic law. It's a rabbinic decree. And it stems from a doubt as to whether that person is pure or impure. Lafika, therefore, consistent with what we learned earlier. It's very important that if there is holy food, holy food may not be burned unnecessarily. We can't burn truma because of this rabbinic defilement. Or holy foods, sacrifices. What we do is we place these objects in a suspense or in abeyance. And we wait until they really become impure. Or also some great scholars, some great meticulously God-fearing people in the time of the Beis when we have to maintain an extra level of sanctity would have only food whose sanctity was maintained, consumed by them. They wouldn't touch any food, even if they had no plans to go to the base of other than food that was sanctity, sacred. Which means chulin, their everyday food, their mundane food, shenasu, which were, were always prepared, at the highest level of sanctity. So what if some of this regular mundane food, which was prepared at the highest level of sanctity, which became defiled by any of the above list of rabbinic defilements, they should also be held in abeyance until they become really impure. Then they can be burned. But the foods that were made, maintaining the sanctity of truma, or mundane food, which have, have to have challah taken from them, do not become impure from the above list. So therefore, in conclusion, we say, that every one of the above list of women, and the objects they lie on, and the objects they ride on, and their saliva, and their urine, Reya, Kesem, Meachar, Shanimsa Kesem, a woman was intimate with the woman who sees a stain after the stain was discovered. Obeyo, one was intimate with Yeletus, a woman who gave birth. Meachar, she also ate because after the hand of the fetus emerged and then was retracted. Kulon, Abeistumas, they are major sources of impurity. However, Midibri, aside from only rabbinic level major sources of impurity, they are not biblical or Torah sources of impurity. End of chapter 3.